Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst or an investor to discuss a single stock or industry. And today we have on the show Matt Cochran, longtime friend of the show, and we're talking about MasterCard. This is what I was really eager to dig into because I think people throw around how good of a business it is. And sometimes I guess the nitty gritty and the details of how the business actually functions has kind of always, uh, I've never had a great grasp on that. So having Matt explain it in such layman's terms was really helpful. Um, So look forward to that. And then also we should mention this was recorded, probably it'll be three weeks prior to uh, this episode airing. So just kind of keep that in mind. Some things can change uh, in between now and then, but this, uh, this is a fun interview. Hope you guys enjoy it. If you like the show, please go ahead, leave a review, uh, give a rating, something like that. It really does help, and, and we always appreciate it. But without further ado, here's our interview with Matt Cochran. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. We are joined today by recurring guest. I think we're maybe getting to the double digits at this point in terms of uh, joining the show, but it's Matt Cochran. He's a lead advisor at Seven Investing. And today we are talking about MasterCard, the payments giant. I guess we usually start by asking, how do you come across this, but I think there's probably a lot of instances where you've come across MasterCard. It's kind of a name that most people know. So maybe let's let's start with the basics of the business. Cause I hear a lot of the there whenever someone explains MasterCard, they always tell me, oh, it's the Rails. And I kind of get that, but at the same time, that isn't a, like a uh I guess that's not a very great way to explain it. It's not completely clear. So could you explain how MasterCard actually works and what it does, how it makes money? Yeah, of course. And guys, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, like, I'll, I'll take the title of recurring guest. There was a time, though, guys, when I was introduced as the podcast BFF. So it's a little sad that we've like progressed beyond the B, the podcast BFF or best friend to like just recurring guests. But it, it's all right. It's all right. I, th- I think you still hold the title. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. it's all right, <laughs> guys. So, what does uh, Mastercard do? Like, like, um, there's some good, there's some good, like, uh, like analogies you can use to describe it, such as rails, such as like a highway or the toll booth model. But it's it's just a payment network that stretches across 210 countries and territories that enables payments in more than 150 different currencies. Um, and much of what I'm going to say today about MasterCard can also be applied to Visa. But MasterCard, it like it facilitates secure and convenient transactions, allowing customers, uh, consumers to use like one of MasterCard's 3.2 billion branded cards. That's like anything from credit, debit, prepaid, and and virtual cards that we have now, like at millions of physical and digital points of sale across the world. Um, So MasterCard, like its big brother Visa, but importantly, unlike American Express and Discover, uh, it never acts as uh, the card issuer or lender, right? Those roles are performed by financial institutions like your bank. Um, and that comes with both like positive, there, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, so for instance, it means MasterCard does not make money from the interest of its users' credit card debt, right? American Express and Discover, when you uh, use your American Express or Discover card, they are the card issuer. They are the one actually loaning the consumer money when they make a credit card purchase, and they will earn money from the interest of that debt. MasterCard and Visa don't. That those That is collected by the bank. The, the, the bank that issued the card. But it also means, however, 
that MasterCard is not liable for that credit default risk. And that is a very good thing. It means that even on certain economic times, when you might have less money, so you're using your MasterCard or Visa less, like they're not on the hook ever for consumers not paying uh, their, their, their credit card bill. Um, which means also, like if you ever see anyone comparing the valuations of MasterCard and Visa to American Express and Discover, it's comparing apples to oranges. It, it's a, a completely different business model because American Express and Discover, they're great lenders, but they will always have that default risk that if, uh, you know, the uh, the crap hits the fan in the economy, like they might ex start experiencing a lot of default risk. Uh, American Express and Discover, they're on the hook for that. MasterCard and Visa never. So just as an aside, never compare those two, uh, those pairs like valuations. Uh, so instead, like MasterCard just ensures that money moves quickly and securely after the purchases are made. They direct funds to and from the proper accounts. So for each transaction made across its network, the, the company just collects it like a small, like almost microscopic fee. And yet when spread across the billions of transactions made with MasterCard products, uh, those fees just like really quickly add up. So in the first quarter alone of this year, that amount amounted to 32.5 billion transactions, which was a 12% increase year over year. And so for every transaction, the uh, MasterCard collects flat, flat fees for the following services, the authorization, which is the process by which the transactions are routed to the financial institutions that issued the cards for approval. The clearing, that's the exchange of financial transaction information between the issuer and acquirer's banks. Now, all that means is like when I go to Walmart and I give them my credit card to buy merchandise, like my bank is the issuer bank because they issued the card to me and the acquirer bank, that's Walmart's bank. So my money is essentially, it's not, you know, is it, we'll, we'll just, we say, you know, that it's going from me to Walmart, but it's really going from my bank to Walmart's bank. Uh, and then the settlement, that's the facilitation of the exchange of funds between parties. All right. So in addition to those flat, fleets, flat fees, MasterCard also collects fees for cross-border and domestic transactions based on the gross dollar volume of the purchase. Uh, so let's break that down. Domestic transactions, those are just simply transactions where the purchase takes place within the country where the card was issued. So that means as a Florida resident, when I go down the street to uh, Starbucks and I buy a coffee, that's a, that's a domestic transaction. Cross-border transaction, that occurs when the purchases take place in a different country from where the card was issued. And those are usually more. So like if I fly to France and I go to the Eiffel Tower and I buy a little souvenir Eiffel Tower thing, uh, like, you know, that's a cross-border transaction. Um, uh, so, and those, that's not, that is not a flat fee. Those are based on the, the dollar volume of that purchase. Uh, so notably, uh, MasterCard collects on those fees that goes up and down based on the dollar amount of the purchase. That's like, I believe, I, I think of it as a built-in hedge against inflation. So, you know, you go to the grocery store and a loaf of bread costs $3.00. Great MasterCard collects a, as a percentage, a certain percentage of that transaction. If the loaf of bread goes up to $4 next week or $5 or $6 in the weeks ahead, MasterCard, because that it's a percentage based on that transaction, MasterCard collects a little more. So uh, I think MasterCard and Visa also make like a neat little hedge against inflation. That's uh, why uh, I always think that if you're a Bitcoin or gold, hyperinflation kind of, I'll call them a doomer, but I, you know, I, I don't say that disrespectfully. I feel like you should also own Visa and MasterCard as well, because if you believe that's going to happen, those stock prices are going to absolutely soar. Yes. Like, and I, and I, 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 I agree with that. And I treat it like that. The only thing to remember is that like, if the economy is really bad, people might be spending less overall. Right, because you, you, you might their unemployment could go up and uh, discretionary purchases go down. But still, like if the economy's that bad off, uh, you know, and we're spending like five hundred dollars on groceries every week instead of what, whatever you're spending now, you know, or if that doubles or triples, like I still think Mastercard, like that, that as a nice hedge against inflation, I think that's better than most. And that's basically what MasterCard does. So if you think of it as the toll booth model, that's probably the best one that works. If you go down the highway and you're paying a toll to, you know, to get on the turnpike and you think of it like as a, a two axle cars are a dollar. But if you, you know, if you're a big truck, they have to pay more because more axles. So the bigger your your purchases are, like that's like kind of the more axles on the truck. And so they have to pay more to go through. Uh, so that's maybe the best. And just think of MasterCard and Visa as the highways that your money travels on from your bank to the merchant's bank.
Okay. I think I'm following along. I'm kind of. I hope so. I hope I'm kind of a payments layman. This is if we're we're doing the payments 101, I'm going to try to like repeat what you just said. And hopefully I'm not further behind than listeners are. So it's not just everyone waiting for me, but it. So I go to Walmart. I've got a MasterCard branded card that's not issued by them, but they are powering the payments behind. I pay. Or when I give them my card, insert it at the point of sales, I guess MasterCard routes that payment to Walmart's bank. And there's basically a couple layers in there. At a lightning speed, securely, um, you know, if there's ever any fraud, they, they, you know, like, you know, like the issuing bank and MasterCard take care of that. And they make sure like the, the, the amounts match up and everything like that. Okay. Okay. Uh, we got to send Ryan over the we got to send Ryan over the flow chart. That that that's where I got. It does help sometimes for like these things to like have that like kind of a like a to see an illustration. Yeah, because then when you add Addian and Stripe in the mix, you're like, why are they there? But then it makes sense that's over what, time. But that's a whole nother. That's, that's a whole where other topic. it mixes me up. Is it, it feels right, like you, everyone says they're facilitating payments, and I'm not. I'm not sure what what the facilitation process looks like. I guess so. Let's let's so let's talk about that. I go to Walmart and I spend a hundred dollars on a purchase, right? Um, uh, all cool clothes because that's you know obviously I have a very fancy wardrobe and I go to Walmart for all my fancy clothes. So I spend a hundred dollars at Walmart. Walmart actually takes away about Walmart being such a big merchant. They probably take a like a bigger cut of this. So Walmart might get ninety eight dollars. A smaller merchant might actually get ninety seven dollars of that hundred dollars. And that money is broken up into several, the, the missing two to three dollars is broken up into several different players. Most of it will go to the issuing bank. So I have a MasterCard. It's issued by JP Morgan Chase. I go to Walmart, I buy my nice clothes at Walmart, and uh, you know, Walmart gets $98 of that. Let's let's call it a buck fifty to a buck sixty will go to JP Morgan Chase. They get the money. They get that money because one, they're saying if there's any fraud, we're going to cover it. And two, if I don't pay my credit card bill, they're not going to come back to Walmart to collect, um, to say, hey, Matt actually never paid for those clothes he bought. So you have to give us that our money back because like uh, Chase is saying, we're, we're fronting Matt the money so he can buy your merchandise. But because we're doing that, we're going to collect again a dollar fifty to a dollar sixty, right? Uh, so Walmart uses like let's say they use First Data or one of these like uh, global payments, what one of these payment companies that like the machines that you use to to do your credit card. Think of those as almost like the on ramp to the highway that is Mastercard and Visa. So they collect ten cents or you know something like that, and Mastercard Visa also collect. 10 to 20 cents. Uh, and that makes up the rest of that money. So uh, so they all, so for that two to three dollars uh, that's missing from a transaction of a hundred uh, for, for about every hundred dollars, uh, MasterCard or Visa gets 10 to 20 basis points. Let's call it um the the payments uh gateway gets will get like another about about the same amount and then most of that though the lion's share is paid to the bank that's called interchange fees um real quick about interchange fees so like uh one there's always talk about like legislation to get rid of interchange fees and the retailers hate it right so think about a company like walmart how much they pay in interchange fees right like even though that's like such a small amount of the hundred dollars like uh, you know, oh, take a retailer like Walmart or Target or you know a, a gas station like ExxonMobil or or whoever. Like they're paying huge, huge amounts in these interchange fees. So they they just hate them so much. Um, and so you talk, you always hear talk about like legislation to limit them, or uh, you know, and retailers talking about how unfair they are. The thing to remember that is that's basically where credit card rewards come from. So if you like your credit card rewards. You don't want to get rid of the interchange fees. Now, uh, there is talk, like if legislation did pass, what what would that mean, though, for MasterCard Visa? So uh, I think Europe makes a good example. Like in 2015, the European Union capped interchange fees to 
for debit cards and 0.3% for credit cards. Uh, so the result was like credit card rewards in Europe are all but extinct and uh, debit cards are used a lot more now. Uh, yet Mark, MasterCard and Visa, they, they've grown their market share in Europe since then and growing their gross dollar volume. So I, I think that demonstrates that even if the current payments landscape were to change in the U.S., it doesn't mean that MasterCard's fees or market share would be surrendered. Now, this comes to one of our Twitter follow-ups that I think can apply here. Did the take rate in Europe change at all for MasterCard and Visa, or were they still yeah. taking the same slice? Um, and what do you, like, is there any risk for Master and MasterCard and Visa, or I guess specifically MasterCard for this episode, they're not the same company, uh, their take rate to either go down or up over time? I, I, I don't think they're going to go too much down or too much up to be honest with you like i said a lot of that does go down to the specific retailer the smaller the merchant you are the less bargaining power you have and generally you will be paying like you know out of every hundred bucks you might be getting down to 96 50 or 97 dollars that you keep whereas the walmarts of the world could keep 98 dollars or even a little more than that of every hundred dollars just because of the volume that goes through there that is why like things like shopify for like online merchants that that is that provides a real uh value simply because as a negotiator uh, for a small merchant or small like online store to uh, the credit cards and the issuing banks. Uh, but for as far as MasterCards and Visa's take rates, I don't expect, technically they collect the interchange fees. So technically they raise their prices to uh, like the retailer or, or not. But like that's, it all goes right back to the issuing bank. Um, so like, like MasterCards and Visa's real take rates, they don't, they don't change much. You'll see a lot of headlines about interchange fees and about like MasterCard, Visa, like those are mostly reporters who don't know what they're talking about. Okay. We've mentioned MasterCard and Visa kind of, and we've mentioned interchanges, but, uh, interchangeably, what are the differences? Like why? What differentiates MasterCard from Visa and is, I mean, it seems like most people just kind of take a basket approach when investing in uh, the payments rails, but is there anything that's like a better quality for either business? So I've always invested in MasterCard over Visa and we'll get into that. I'll explain why. However, I think Visa is a terrific business. I think MasterCard is maybe marginally better but I'm not. I'm not sure of that. Um, like they're 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 almost interchangeable. Like it's it's very very difficult actually for a merchant to accept one without the other. I think the only example there is really is Costco, which uh, like made Visa like an exclusive like offer, and that's just because Costco is kind of different, right? But like almost everywhere else, when you turn it on, like you're saying. Like uh, you're you're almost you, you turn both on at the same time. And as a merchant, why wouldn't you? I mean, like you know, if 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 sixty percent of consumers have Visa and thirty percent have Mastercard, Visa is bigger. Uh, why why are you you know why would you want to discriminate against one or the other, right? Like if I'm if I'm a merchant, I like my Mastercard, but Brett likes Visa. And Ryan, you open a store, like you're you're gonna want it, both of our business. Uh, at least everybody except Costco, right? So, uh, like they're they're almost interchangeable. They had almost the exact same business model. One of the reasons I like Mastercard better, even though Visa's doing this now. So again, it's it's getting harder and harder to differentiate. Is Mastercard's always been better about the services, its layers on top of its network. Um, so this made up about a third of its revenue in the first quarter. Uh, their services and solution segment. Um, that's, which was about like, yeah, that was a uh, $2.1 billion in revenue in the first quarter. Um, and their services is everything from data and analytics, consulting services, um, loyalty solutions, fraud solutions, cyber intelligence solutions, um, like, uh, and all of these services, they will add to either the, to the financial side. So I'm a local credit union and, uh, you know, I issue MasterCard to my, uh, to, to my, uh, to, to my customers, to my account holders. And so like, I'm being a small credit union, I might not have good loyalty services. I don't know how to offer rewards. 
And I might not have the best, most up-to-date like fraud solutions, but I can go to MasterCard and say, okay, MasterCard, I'm going to give you our consumer credit card portfolio. Uh, and we're also, we'll pay extra for your fraud solutions and your loyalty solutions, maybe your uh, your your security solutions, you know, things like this. And and so MasterCard, that that was like a third of its revenue in the first quarter. And that that grew was, that grew, uh, that was like almost 20% year over year that it grew. This is like a really fast growing segment for MasterCard. And MasterCard, it has seemed like uh, that they've always been a step or two ahead of Visa with their services. Now, I will say some people have said, or some people believe like Visa does the same things. It's just that they we're not always as open or transparent about it. Like they just kind of hid that data more, just kind of baked it into their their like uh, processing business and they just never really showed it. I, I can't really say. I, I would just say from what they have shared to investors, MasterCard's always been better about that. Now Visa is very upfront because MasterCard started outperforming Visa. So now Visa is very, they've broken all that out and they always talk about the services they offer to, again, two terrific businesses. Uh, I just think MasterCard kind of always has had the lead there. So that is the differentiator for like the issuing bank side. Cause I get it from the merchant's point. It makes sense. You know, why would you eliminate half your whatever three tenths of your customers but from the issuing bank side why would you choose a certain card like choose to issue visa backed cards as opposed to mastercard backed cards is it that services segment you're talking about yes so okay so important point like the real customers for mastercard and visa are the banks like i'll i'll never go out and like say like oh i don't want a visa card i want a, a mastercard like you never say that you're going to go to your bank that you want to go to because they offer better rewards because they're more convenient to you or because they give you like the loan you want or or whatever. Like you're with your bank and if they switch from Visa to MasterCard or MasterCard to Visa, I don't think anyone in history has ever left their bank because of that. Like they're basically interchangeable products. And as the end consumer, I don't care. And I don't think anyone does. Like, right, it does the exact same thing. So the banks are the real customer. And like, you want to win the bank's portfolios. So you want to go to Chase, like that's obviously a huge one, but every credit union, you know, with their 10,000 account holders, like, okay, hey, when your visas are expiring, now for this next three or four year cycle, as we issue new cards, they're going to be visas or MasterCards instead of the other one. Or, you know, they can obviously keep the same one, but like the banks are the real customer. The MasterCard and Visa always want to keep the banks happy. So almost everything they do is designed for the banks because consumers vast majority just do not care. Right. And the, the, those are huge volume drivers. And maybe we're going to talk about uh, the next section, how maybe some of these uh, quote unquote disruptive threats are really diversifying the business. So there's lots of like, there's just so many opportunities for Visa and MasterCard to capture new card issuers. But I want to talk about, you know, we've kind of solidified how MasterCard's business works, at least the core part of it. And you mentioned the services that go on top of it, but I think what people maybe underappreciate is like the the, the changing of the volume or the, the makeup of the volume. Uh, when I say volume, I mean payment volume. So maybe over the last five to 10 years, what has changed about the MasterCard business? And then are there any other ways they're expanding like in recent years, that are there any important services they added on top of the, the network? Okay, so what's crazy to me anyways, is that MasterCard, like so as ubiquitous as MasterCard's network is, its acceptance has doubled in the last five years with almost 100 million acceptance points. Uh, that growth is, is mostly due to emerging markets adopting electronic and digital payments more uh, and new technologies gaining wider use, such as contactless phone payments. Um, so I think that's like uh, uh, like very important, like their network is still growing. And even though in North America, uh, we just take that for granted because that's just the way, um, you know, I'm older than you guys, but still for as long as I've been alive, you know, I've, I've always had a credit card, you know, or, you know, as long as I've been an adult, I've always had a credit card and use that pay, to pay for things. Um, uh, so we're just used to it and we're used to anywhere we go, like we can we can pay for it with a with a card. Uh, but in the emerging markets, that's a very different story. So their network has actually doubled uh, in the last five years. They're also building like new networks. Um, so uh, like for instance, uh, like MasterCard has an open banking platform and that allows customers to like pay bills 
from their bank accounts like frictionlessly and securely. Uh, and JP Morgan Chase, Chase is actually using MasterCard's like they're introducing a pay by bank solution that uses MasterCard's open banking platform. Uh, that solution is supposed to come to market by the end of this year. Um, and MasterCard does not believe like these new networks will cannibalize its existing card business too much, but instead just expand like its addressable market to new use cases, such as bill payments, where a lot of times like uh, we, we, we might not pay with our credit card, but we just pay straight from our bank account. All right, that's beautiful. And before we move on to disruptive threats, is there anything else you want to hit on their actual business products uh, before we hit the competitive landscape? No, I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm open to any questions, but I think that basically covers like how they make their money and, and what they do. Perfect. All right. Now, the biggest thing that I think comes up every so often, there's kind of a cycle of disruptive threats to the payment networks. There's the professional, or not professional, there's the private ones that we'll mention, and then there's the government ones. So I think maybe first we'll hit private. Um, you wrote in one of your write-ups for 7investing that all the quote-unquote disruptive threats, which could be... Um, you know, someone like people talk about Square and PayPal, people talk about Google Pay, Apple Pay, people talk about buy now, pay later, people talk about crypto, which I guess is kind of just a, that's more of a wild card that we maybe don't even need to address at this point. You say that actually these disruptive threats that people talk about benefit MasterCard why is that the case? Why are people, you know, maybe why do people have so much of a misunderstanding of these quote unquote competitive threats? Yeah. So I hope I, I might have worded that poorly. I shouldn't have said all potential like disruptive threats like this benefit MasterCard and Visa. However, I will say a lot of them do. So let's take, uh, let's take, you know, let's take Apple Pay. Great example. Like people more and more use Apple Pay to pay for like their apps that they're, you know, they need to pay for, or they buy, you know, they're on their phone, they're buying something on their phone and they use Apple Pay or even, you know, in more limited use cases, but even going to the store now, you, you know, you can use things like Apple Pay. Um, well, not, you know, nine times out of 10, those are attached to a MasterCard or Visa debit card or credit card. Um, so that has expanded use of people using their MasterCard or Visa, you know, where, and again, like, so, the up until just a few years ago, like the big number one enemy for MasterCard and Visa was still cash, right? And so like they just had have had the secular tailwind like behind their back of payments moving from cash money from when people go to the store to like electronic and digital payments. And more and more, uh, like and again, like their network just doubled in the last five years. So even around the world, that's still that's still a, a tailwind for these guys. Uh, but like, so Apple Pay, but it has habituated, it has made a habit of people like using their Apple Apple Pay to pay for things. And that's, like I said, nine times out of 10, that's a, that's attached to MasterCard or Visa. Think about Square and Cash App, right? Like, so Square, um, like, you know, people want to pay with their Cash App. Again, that's mostly attached to MasterCard or Visa. And Square, like when they made their little dongles that people can plug into phones and now they can accept credit card payments. Well, again, go, go back ten, even 10 years but uh, you know, and 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 farther back from that, you went to a farmer's market, you went to a food truck, you went to a lot of places still, and you had to pay cash because it, to accept credit cards required uh, like a landline and like expensive hardware. And so when Square introduced the dongle, and you could you know pay on somebody's phone or or pay or, or a, a, an iPad, a tablet, like now you can use your credit card at that many more use cases. You can use that at the flea market when you go to the flea market. And, you know, you can just use it almost like a farmer's market. You can use it almost everywhere now. Like um I have a picture of it somewhere, but like my wife and I for our 20th anniversary like a year ago, we went up to like New Hampshire and Vermont in the fall. And you know, we we were like just looking at the leaves and all these things. And there's a pumpkin patch and there was like a stand outside someone's house like selling pumpkins or fall foliage and that kind of stuff. And it was just like on it, there was a placard with a QR code on it, like say like pay here for what you need, right? And like that used to would have been like several years ago, that would have been a, a jar for cash. But now you just use the QR code and whether that goes to Apple Pay or PayPal or Google Pay or however you pay it on your phone, nine times out of 10, that's attached to MasterCard or Visa I, um, on the back. You, you even see it with like um, street performers. 
uh, right. someone playing a guitar. They used to have, you know, their their guitar case would be open asking for cash. Now it's just a QR like, code. Yeah. Or my vet, here's my Venmo or something. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So okay. You uh, see it everywhere. So. Okay. Now the next question that people have with this is will a PayPal, will an Apple Pay, will, I guess buy now, pay later kind of went boom and bust, but will any of these networks, have they ever said or have they ever succeeded in bypassing MasterCard or Visa? Because I know a lot of people talk about quote unquote closing the loop and making everything internal. Has that ever happened? Do you see that as a threat or in is very, it realistic? In very limited use cases they have. And even in those, more and more you're seeing them open up to the open loop. So like some subway systems use like, uh, you know, like a specific, like your subway card for, uh, you know, or, or whatever, your subway app to pay for like your 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 tickets or things, you know, where you just tap your phone going through. But even more and more, those are going to more open loops just because it's so ubiquitous. So let me tell you, so let me tell you about like maybe, so you guys know, but if you're listening and you don't, like I love economic modes and I love companies with economic modes and um, which just means any competitive advantage. And what I love about MasterCard and Visa is like, it would be the classically just called the network effect, which just means the more that merchants accept it, the more that like, um, uh, the more that consumers like us will want to have it because we can just use it in so many places. And the more consumers have it, the more merchants want it. So it would be very hard uh, like to come in when you think about that network and like to disrupt it. However, it was attempted once. And what I think is neat about knowing or evaluating economic moats is like, has there ever been a moat attack? So a moat attack is when somebody, especially a very well-capitalized attempt uh, by like some big competitor or somebody who had a lot of money and wanted to disrupt MasterCard and Visa, um, like, like when they come in and they completely failed. And we have an example of that with MasterCard and Visa. So like, let me just give you a little history lesson, but I think this, this example is, is beautiful for uh, showing like the strength of MasterCard and Visa. So let me take you back. In 2011, a consortium of retailers got together and they wanted to start a company called the Merchant Customer Exchange. And they were going to make an app called Current and the letter C, so it sounded like currency. They were gonna make an app called Currency and they were all gonna band together because they were tired of paying the interchange fees that we were talking about. They wanted to come together and collect that for themselves and they were gonna make a network. These retailers included Walmart, Target, Best Buy, CVS, Shell, Olive Garden, Lowe's, Michaels, Sears, Circle K, 7-Eleven, Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, QT, Wawa, Racetack, Sheets, Phillips 66, you can go on and on. Uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, Gap, Kohl's, overall 110,000 retail locations that processed more than a trillion dollars of payments annually. And this is back in 2011. And they were going to go live in 2014. Uh, and they also had banks to help them out, um, like JP Morgan Chase. So this was like a huge attempt to try to take the networks out of it. And, um, and, and, and again, just to get rid of the interchange fee, it lasted for till June 2016 when it just shut down. It utterly failed. Um, and it did and it failed for a few reasons. One, they're solving up, they were trying to solve a problem for retailers, but not consumers. Consumers love their credit card. They love credit card points, they love all these things. Um, and it didn't tap into any existing networks or user behavior. And if that kind of network uh fail with like that many retailers, like just, again, just utterly fail. Like, I mean, people don't even remember it because it was such a failure. Like it's like just lost to history, but like, uh, like just private attempts to disrupt MasterCard or Visa have just completely gone nowhere. Now there's been other, like, look, uh, it doesn't mean one that it can't, it can't happen one day or, or two. It doesn't mean that like, uh, you know, uh, like there haven't been like things like Zelle that have been introduced, which have very interesting use cases, but most of those, like you're not going to a store and paying with Zelle. Um, and uh, like, so I just think like looking at that mode attack and just how utterly it failed, like it just shows you how entrenched uh, these networks, MasterCard and Visa are into our uh, commerce ecosystem. Whoops, I was on mute there. Um, what about... And this might be a bit speculative. Apple Pay 
going a bit and maybe they wouldn't be exactly like American Express, but trying like, do you, do you worry about them? Cause Apple has really gone into, you know, they could offer rewards and stuff. They could offer, they already have the, the Apple card. Do you, do you worry about them clo- kind of trying to be a closing the loop and being a bit of like American Express for their consumers? I feel like that from the private you know perspective, at least in the United States and maybe some other richer nations, the Apple threat feels like the biggest one, but I'm curious if you think that is misguided. So like one, who, who knows? I, I can't say it's impossible. What I would say is like, if I was an Apple and I, well, I am an Apple shareholder, it's a smaller position for me, but like, uh, like I wouldn't want them to do that. Like for a few reasons, one, as soon as you're like directing money yourself and you're not going to an issuing bank, uh, you're going to demand like a smaller multiple as that number grows. Now for Apple, like it's different. They have so many other, you know, like revenue streams and things. So like, you know, they probably could get away with it a little more, but if that number ballooned and where that became like a really like big number that they're lending out and they're liable for all those defaults, even for a company like Apple, that's going to eventually start demanding a lower like valuation multiple. Um, and two, remember, like right now they use MasterCard and Visa to be accepted everywhere. Like if if they unplug from that, like then they have to go get accepted everywhere. Now they have so many consumers, um, you know, like they they could probably do that, but that that would still be a giant step back uh, for Apple Pay. Like, um, you know, as far as like being accepted everywhere. Now, like on your phone, like I guess that's like more, you know digitally, but like in store, especially like that's a giant step back. Um, like what I would say is like any Apple Pay, like or anytime, forget about. Apple Pay too, but like anytime like a fintech comes up and that could be buy now, pay later. Um, you know, that could be uh, like any other fintech that wants to come up with any kind of payments app. The quickest way possible to get uh, to like get con- some kind of like uh, uh, like ubiquity going. So where your app is accepted everywhere is to just plug into the networks. And so if you're right. you're saying, no, I want to disrupt the networks, like, man, that is a hard, hard road. Now, could someone like Apple do it? I mean, like, if, if you're looking, like, probably like Apple or Google are the only ones who would even try. But again, I, I see that more on the digital side, not really the in-store person side. Um, but like, uh, but yeah, may, maybe, but like, I don't think Apple wants to be a bank. They're heavily regulated. So they come with a whole bunch of new regulations on how they can spend their capital. They have to hold a whole bunch of capital on their balance sheet then to counterweight like the money they're loaning out. That becomes a whole thing. I, I really don't think Apple wants to be a bank and like the government telling them like, this is how you can spend your money and this is how you can't. And also at the same time, demanding a much, much lower valuation as the money they're loaning out uh, gets bigger and bigger. And, and two, like, again, it would also be a giant step back in acceptance. Now, could they build that back out? Eventually, maybe, but like, why? I guess, why do all that to disrupt MasterCard and Visa? It just doesn't seem like something they would want to do. Okay, let's move on to governments. I, as someone who wants to own MasterCard or Visa and is painstakingly waiting for a valuation that may never show up, I look at stuff like this article that I linked to about India's central bank setting up its own sort of payments network. And that kind of becomes one of the biggest fears for me. I think it's a bigger fear than the private ones because these governments can institute a lot of the stuff. They could kind of shove it down consumers' throats, shove it down the merchants' throats. Do you see that as a risk? Has any of that worked before? Um, and is like the India part an example that you followed with these companies or specifically MasterCard? Yeah, I missed a I missed a part of that question. So basically, like can the government like say you're gonna use this payment rail instead of MasterCard or Visa? Yeah, they made they made their own payment rails. I think India is an example here, but I'm not sure how successful that's been or whether they, you know if they're too entrenched at this point that the governments can't even disrupt them. So, I mean, a government can, if they try hard enough, a government can probably always disrupt like a company, like within the borders of their own country, right? So I think India, that that is probably a good example of like where it's obviously it's taking off. Um, you know, uh, I don't see like, you know, more developed nations like that happening, but like, could you get that in an India? Sure. Uh, and that does take away some of its TAM, right? Like it's, total addressable market like that. Uh, I think that's certainly something to consider. 
Um, and a lot, but uh, th- the things to consider is like um, one, you know, like Mastercard and Visa, like they're growing in in places like India, but they're not like that's not like taking away existing revenue, really. Um, and and two, it's like people in India, like they'll still want to travel and they go outside their borders of their country and they won't be able to use that domestic system anymore. And what will they use? They'll use MasterCard and Visa. So like, even you see that a lot in China where like uh, MasterCard and Visa have had like, man, I remember buying MasterCard in 2015 and like acceptance in China was allegedly just around the corner, you know, like it's it coming, just, baby, the China growth. Coming, done. Right. <laughs> and, and China has just like, you know, I mean, China can just do what they want. Right. And, um, but even then, like a lot of Chinese banks have partnerships with MasterCard or Visa so that when their account holders travel outside the country and when they travel, like they, you know, to, to when they go outside the country, they have to use something. They can't use like whatever they're using inside the country. Uh, so they use MasterCard and Visa. So uh, like just overall, like I, I, MasterCard and Visa will still have some market within those countries because they're global network. And that's really, really powerful, you know, in a world uh where like, uh, you know, where the borders or in, in, a, in a world without borders, and obviously we still have borders, but like, you know, like people as they travel and as these emerging economies like grow up more and more of those consumers will travel, they're, they're, they need to use something and it will be MasterCard or Visa. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the international travel mode and how that could definitely be one that just steadily expands over the next few decades. Let's move to management. They had a management transition lately. The old executive, um, the CEO, forget his name. You can, you, you probably know it. Matt did extremely well. Um, but how has this transition gone? Do you think it's been successful? And yeah, any other thoughts on management? Yeah, Michael Bebach took over. I'm trying to remember when he took over because it was right around COVID. So, I, you know, like anything with COVID, I, I just think that makes it really difficult to measure. I guess, like how he would have done in quote unquote normal times, uh, especially for, uh, you know, a company like MasterCard and COVID where just travel shut down, but e-commerce exploded and you're trying to normalize both of those. Um, but I think Michael Bebach has been fine. He's been with the company since uh, 2010. AJ Benga was the CEO before. AJ Benga was like, uh, in my mind, like, uh, because I got a MasterCard a long, long time ago, like AJ Benga will always have a soft spot in my heart for AJ Benga. Um, uh, he was fantastic. Uh, so I don't know. Michael Meebach has not proven himself to that extent, but like uh, he, I think he's been very competent uh, as CEO. So y- 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 I don't think he's made any big mistakes or, or anything like that. Um, so y- I don't see any red flags there. I guess it's the best way to say it. Okay. Can, can you, can you guys hear me? Okay. Sorry. I've had some technical difficulties. Okay. Um, I guess we've, I mean, we've hit on the competitive advantages. We've discussed really the business model and new management, maybe more on the investment specifically, something that I have, and as Brett mentioned, uh, have always clung to for a reason not to own it is the valuation. I guess 15 times, fingers crossed, 15 times earnings is coming. It's coming. (laughs) Trough earnings, 15 times trough earnings. Just wait. How do you think about the valuation? Um, is this one where you kind of just, I don't want to say ignore it, but it matters less. You know, I had, uh, had some wide charts up and then before the show, we were talking about Home Depot and Lowe's and I was brought up all those charts. Um, but look, I think the PE ratio is like, uh, like a little under 40 right now. Um, yeah. So one of the things I think that makes like MasterCard and Visa amazing, right? You're, you're talking about operating margins, like over 50% operating margin. And, you know, uh, in Visa's case, like sometimes they clear 60%. Uh, MasterCard has like said, like, they're almost purposely not trying to get 60% because they want to invest more for growth or, or 60%, but they want to they'll clear 50%. They've said that's kind of their goal for margins, clear 50%. But like once it gets like too much higher than that, they start trying to look for areas to invest for in growth. Um, so like, I don't think you're going to get a company like that uh, cheap, right? Like you're just not. And, and, and also this is like a company... Uh, I was talking to someone at a money manager once 
And they said like MasterCard and Visa are like companies, they can basically roll out of bed in the morning and grow revenue by 10%. Uh, basically, like, right, you have a PCE, which is personal consumer expenditures, which is kind of a combination of GDP and inflation uh, every year. And let's just call that between three and 5% a year, right? Like some inflation plus GDP growth, three to 5% easy, but let's just be conservative. I think three to 5% is pretty conservative that you'll get that every year. You get it like a, you know, maybe a 1% dividend, 1% buyback, and you still have the secular tailwinds for like growth of digital and electronic payments. And so like, you can just like, they, like I said, like they put it like, uh, 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 like, you know, for just rolling out of bed, you almost get to 10% revenue growth and you have margins of 50 to 60%. And you have this moat that, has been attacked and completely stood up to it. And that people like, you know, retailers hate it. Um, you know, uh, banks wish they could do it, but they can't, they can't. And uh, and so with a mode that wide, with margins that high and revenue growth that automatic, I, I don't think you're going to get it cheap um, is, is all I can say. Uh, you know, like when I bought it, I thought it was expensive too. Um, you know, I think the PE ratio was, it was closer to 30 maybe at that time. Uh, there was a golden age to buy MasterCard and Visa when they first IPO'd because the reason why they used to be owned by like a network of banks and like the history of how MasterCard and Visa came into existence is crazy, by the way. But like uh, without without going into that like too long, like just saying like they, they were owned by the banks for, for forever. And then like the banks spun them out and their IPOs and I think MasterCard was like, I don't know, like you know, before 2010 and Visa was like a year or two after that, but like they, you know, they were, they were spun out and, um, and they were being, because they were being hit with like all these threats of lawsuits and like um, by the retailers and like there's new regulation coming through and people were freaking out about the regulation and the lawsuits and the lawsuits. I mean, they paid a lot of money, like billions and billions of dollars in these lawsuits, but like they were passing things and they have grown tremendously since their IPO. So that was the time to get it at a cheap valuation when all those things were coming for it. Uh, you know, you're only going to get it at a good valuation again if like there's a real credible threat to its moat. So it's almost like I would be like, unless you're very certain about whatever that was causing that disruption risk, uh, you're probably not going to get it that low. Like, so, and you take something like Moody's like, or, uh, you know, S&P for their credit ratings business. I think those are like, uh, other businesses with like really just incredible moats, but they don't have the growth factor there. Um, you know, so, and like their PE ratios are almost like in some cases higher, maybe. So I think with the, the, the growth, the automatic revenue growth, the uh, high margins and the uh, like the wide economic moats MasterCard and Visa have, I just don't think you're going to get them too cheap. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I think you're probably right. When was the first time you bought shares? I have owned this in one of our episodes. You guys probably had me on. I probably talked about my investing journey and like how, like I finally just like got smart and MasterCard and Disney were the two stocks I bought immediately after that. Uh, so that would have been late 2014, like second half of 2014, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Congrats. All right. Hey, yeah, congrats on the, <laughs> no, Mas- yeah, Mas- the other one. So <laughs> the MasterCard more than made up for the 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 Disney uh we'll call it the stagnation, I think. Yes. The great stagnation at Disney. Okay. Let's go to our last question that we ask every time. I'm sure you remember it getting asked the, the last three or four times we've done a company, and it is the pre-mortem, and it's what could go wrong here. Now we address the government stuff, which is kind of like, all right, well, you can't predict that. My take on the biggest pre-mortem or why this investment would be do poorly is deflation. Does do you see that as the biggest risk? And do you worry about that? Because I, I feel like if there's a deflationary bust, obviously you can't predict the Great Depression, but some sort of deflationary bust could be very hurt, you know, it could hurt this business. So any thoughts on that or any other risks that you're watching? So any kind of macroeconomic thing like deflation, right? Uh, I consider to be more cyclical, like anyways, like it could happen, but then eventually it too shall pass. Um, so anything like that, like, um, I, it would survive and I think be okay on the other side. Uh, it wouldn't be fun going through something like that, obviously, um, with, with MasterCard or with a lot of stocks, 
right? Um, but yeah, it, it probably wouldn't be too fun, but I think it would survive and then be fine on the other side. I think the the biggest risk is like the um, central bank digital currencies. So if they make the dollar a digital currency or maybe even crypto, if somehow like crypto became- Oh man, crypto, come on. Crypto. I don't, look, I, I on, own MasterCard. I own MasterCard, but you're, giving, you're telling me to do a pre-mortem. So, yeah, we right. first- it's, it's yeah, our so fault. We're, we asked the question. Like, fair, I don't that's think fair. it will. I, I don't think it will. I don't think it will. I don't own any crypto. Um, but if you're telling me that MasterCard didn't make it, it's probably something like that. Uh, like either like, like I said, central bank digital currency or like some kind of crypto use that could actually be used for currency and not as an asset. Like I think, you know, but then the price thing would have to figure itself out because right now crypto's price volatility i don't think it will ever be used as a currency until that's figured out which i don't know if that can be figured out but uh if that was figured out maybe that uh maybe like a central bank digital currency um but again like i i think something like that might disrupt these networks more than like apple deciding you know what let's be a bank and let's uh make apple pay you know its own issuer and its own network like I, I, I'm, I worry more about like the government side than like a, a private disruptor trying to build like a better network or something. Government, government is a our government competition is a huge moat test, and I kind of think Mastercard would pass it, but that would be you know definitely hurt the stock probably in the short run, and it would definitely be a threat to its business over the long run. Um, Ryan, I have no other questions unless you have any. Do you want to wrap up? No, I, I think we've covered. Pretty much everything here. Uh, people that listen to the show on a regular basis and have heard Matt before, uh, you know where to find him. He has tons of work and tons of research and write-ups at seveninvesting.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. What's the what's the handle there, Matt? At Matt underscore Cochran number seven. And okay. if you search Matt Cochran, I'm sure it'll pop up and we'll have the link to the Twitter in the show notes. All right. Well, uh, before we sign off, we should throw a disclosure on this. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Matt, for coming on yet again, and we'll see you all next time. 